Yes. Um, I was looking, I found a, a guided meditation that described a technique that I hadn't done before. And what it was, was starting by taking the longest comfortable breath, count to nine within the breath. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and then all the way back down to one. Uh, and to do that until I have kind of a sense of the rate at which I have to count such that I get to nine at the top and one back at the bottom. And once I've done that, then I will count to six and I'll take a breath. Like an, is that for uh, one to nine for the in breath and nine to one on the out breath? Backwards? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And then to do a count to six and to breathe in this kind of medium breath up to six and then back down to one and then to do it with three and uh, one, two, three, three, two, one. Uh, and then eventually to, uh, not go for any number, but just to breathe naturally and notice what number it goes up to. Um, and throughout all of this, I'm maintaining a full body awareness, of, uh, and just trying to keep my awareness wide. Um, and I've, had good success using this technique to enter jhana. Um, and just a couple of days ago, I started reading a little bit of this. Before thing. you change the topic, who tell me about this video or this? Yes, uh, uh, it was a guided meditation from a retreat held by Rob Verbea. And Rob Berbea was a student of Tanisaro Bhikkhu. Tanisaro. Tanisaro Bhikkhu, yes. Bhikkhu. Um, so, yes, yeah, so Rob, Rob has a, on, online, there's a retreat he held a jhana retreat and all of his talks and recordings and all of that are on there. Um, yeah, so and I, I started reading uh, a book called, or a PDF I found online, it's called Anapanasati and it's by uh, Buddhadasa. And I just got to the first four lines of the sutra and it was breathing in long, breathing in short, the whole body, and calming the mental formation, the bodily formations. Um, so that's, I was, I found that interesting because that seemed to map very closely to how I was doing the breathing. I've also started doing Along with that, uh, I've been spending some time investigating the three characteristics, um, noticing impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. Um, I'll usually just do one sit where I focus on 
the breathing and the jhana and I'll do a separate sit and I'll do the, the three characteristics and I'll usually, I've been doing about two sits every day. Um, the, the three characteristics stuff is very new. I've only been doing it for this past six days. Perhaps whatever you're calling that. Um, but you have actually been working with the Nietzsche right from the get-go in the sense that um, a way of speaking of the normal mind is a normal mind that kind of wanders around. Freud called it free association. That also is a form of restlessness, that the mind just keeps moving from one object to another, to another, to another. That is the anicca. So when you're doing Anapanasati, the step 13 would be to see that the mind is wandering from one thought to the next, like that. And that would be part of the waking up process, because to fully awake is to put a stop to that stuff. Okay. Okay, and that's one of the, that's the important point uh, that uh, is underlying uh, methods of, of counting. But in fact, I've actually given these uh, methods of counting to students before on videos. Uh, the differences in how many numbers and in which direction they go. But basically, it's working with the long breath. Uh, and uh, actually, it has also the quality of remembering to breathe long. Because the problem is, is that if we let the breathing go back to normal, now the way that you were mentioning it in the instructions is when it goes back to normal, we still have an important job to do with it. But, and in, and in that regard, we're monitoring it, uh, and the other part of it is control. So I would say that uh, the student of, uh, 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 Achan uh, Tanisharo uh, is following along with the Anapanasati Sutra. There are other techniques within the Theravada tradition, uh, for instance, noting, but not making that change, throwing those hindrances out and putting more wholesome thoughts in. It just notes. So um, I stabbed I Granny in the back last night. I noted. <laughs> and that I, I know that I kicked the dog this morning, and I know that you know, and we just let that stuff be in the mind, uh, noting, and that the instructions uh, uh, actually cannot be missed. Uh, there's too much about the hindrances in various sutras to not understand that they are called hindrances for the particular reason of immediate extraction to pull them out, to get them out of the mind right now, uh, because they are hindering us to be in this present moment. Uh, And so uh, this tape that you've listened to is actually quite in line with the teachings of uh, the Buddha, uh, which I would expect from Ajahn Tanisaro. I've I've been around him before. I think, in fact, I haven't seen him in 
25 years or so. <laughs> but another way of, of, of looking at it is, is that we are going to get small little differences and uh, changes in styles of teaching and whatnot, simply because the teacher himself is experimenting with and playing with this marvelous toy. And so what he's found, he will then pass on to his students. The students will then pick that up as a technique, but if they're not careful, they'll pick it up as gospel or law, mm -hmm. or this is the right way to do yes. it. The, the, in fact, this teacher continually emphasizes to play with it and to figure out, you know, your own way, what works for you, and to just have fun with it, which is really nice to hear. Um, yeah. Well, that's what you get from me. So that's what you get from all of them. Yeah. <laughs> and all yeah, of them and it was it was similar. It was similar to what you said, and. And there's kind of a separate thing where I can I could just tell when I started listening to him, to him talk, I could just tell it was good Dhamma. Like I even before he was going into the instructions or anything, uh, it, it just came out in his in his speaking. So that's been my uh, practice as of late. Um, and it's been enjoyable and my life i i was again when i first moved i was depressed uh this was because i was very lonely uh and mostly because i was missing my cat um but i was able to pull myself out of it yeah Okay, well, I'm glad to hear that you were able to pull yourself out of Katduka. Yeah. That uh, uh, basically the, the easiest way and the right way to do it is every time, um, let us say after you moved, you understood that you were in uh, having bouts of Katduka. Therefore, uh, the determination would be then, I'm not want to let thoughts of that cat drag me down. I'm not going to let that grind me away. So every time then that a thought about that cat comes up, we can take a deep breath and say, aha, I don't need that cat right now. I'm good. <laughs> over and over again. My first concern, in fact, the first thing that I checked on was the condition of the cat. And you assured me that the, the yeah. cat was okay. The problem was you. And it says, okay, let's go for that. <laughs> well, the thing that, uh, that really made me sad wasn't even that I missed the cat. But, you know, the cat was, the cat was attached to me. The cat was not attached to my roommate. The cat spent 99% of its time in my room. And whenever the cat was anxious, the cat would come to me to get pet. And so I, I the, re the thing that really made me sad was just this, like that I, I knew that the cat would 
for some period of time feel abandoned. Uh, and now I know that's okay because my roommate has sent photos and videos of the cat and uh, the cat is doing well. And in fact, that, that really also helped me not be depressed. Um, and, <laughs> okay. and in a way, <laughs> and in a way it was actually um, really nice uh, to think about that, to, 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 because it, it, it felt selfless. It wasn't, I'm going to miss the cat. I, I just was concerned about the cat and, and also the, this theme of abandonment. I, I, I think the reason it struck with me so much is because I, I certainly, in my childhood, I had some negative experiences where I felt abandoned, and I think it kind of connected to that. Uh, so in a way, it, it was actually very, um, it was great to experience that, because even though at times it was really sad, I, I remember one time in particular, it was sad and simultaneously really pleasant. It was confusing that way, but uh, it was good. <laughs> It was a good cry. I had a very good cry. <laughs> there is a sutta, number 87 in the Madhyamadakaya. The name of it is Grief Comes from Those Who Are Dear. And you've just ex uh, um, uh, experienced that. I use the word cat dukkha because that's exactly what we're talking about is the grief that we experience from the loss of a friend or a pet or whatever like that. And that um, the interesting thing about this sutta is, is that it doesn't leave it or it doesn't bring it back to the Buddha giving a resolution to this. That the Buddha is only making the statement that grief comes from those who are dear. And that leaves us then with the quandary of, does that mean that I'm not going to allow anything to become dear anymore? Or does that mean that I can become prepared in advance so that if I do lose something that's dear, I can manage that really well? Yeah. I, so that I can have kind of both sides of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I felt, I remember feeling ambivalent about connection one of my friends saying oh Aman, you should get a new another cat you know you should get another cat and at, at that point in time i was like i don't want to hear that because you know that was that then made me i was very ambivalent about connection and and even um when i was growing up i i haven't had to really deal with death before um I, I've had grandparents die, but because they lived in India, I wasn't very close to them. Uh, and so this was, in a way, I had a lot of thoughts coming up around death. And I had thoughts kind of like, you know, why is death a thing? Why does it even have to be that way? Um, so that for me, it was kind of the first time really processing this stuff. And in, in a way, cu coming to coming to terms or just coming to acceptance with just how some things are. Mm -hmm. And how things are 
uh, are the way that we see them rather than how things are as they really are. Um, an example of that is if you heard a third person story, perhaps out of a child's book, about the man who was sad about uh, losing his cat, it doesn't have the same impact upon it when it's me losing my cat. And that that's, um, that's that added thing that we, that we begin to understand is that dearness is what we're adding to the situation. That it's not just a cat. The cat's just a cat. With all the things that cats have, plus or minus owners and all of that kind of stuff. But now when it's a deer cat, mm. now the whole way begins to, uh, uh, to change in our reflection about that. But in that regard, the, rather than retreating away from things being deer, we wind up through our noble right view and noble compassion. We begin to understand the depth of human sorrow and suffering in the world due to the loss of things. That people are constantly in a state of loss, constantly in a state of, because uh, um, things are temporary. Just like we were talking about a moment ago, not only is the mind itself temporary, but everything on the outside world is also in flux. And basically what's going on is, is that the loss of a cat uh, and um, has to do with the fact that we do not want the loss of the cat. The cat's fine, but the fact that I don't have the cat here now is something that I don't like. This is my um, addition to the movie okay yeah. my sob story now is the name of the movie <laughs> <laughs> or my pity party rather than uh somebody else's pity party but then you recognize oh wait a minute every pity party is always thrown by the guest of honor <laughs> there are no yeah. pity parties without a guest of honor everybody who has a pity party has one for me And when you recognize, wait a minute, I don't really have to do that. In a way, feeling that way about the cat's kind of insane, you know? <laughs> kind of crazy to have those bad feelings because you know the cat's okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when we begin to see the dukkha that way, then we begin to see, wait a minute, this is not about the cat. This is about how humans get attached to things and then we suffer because we're not willing to let go. Yeah. And when we do that, we can then immediately pop out of that, that that's a hindrance. That's the, that's the glory of the teaching of the Buddha of Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. Once you see the depths of that Dukkha, of uh, 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 cat gone dukkha then we can say wait a minute i don't have to feel that way <laughs> i can i can remember the cat fondly i don't have to remember the cat with longing yeah
I don't have to add the pity party to it. I can be joyful instead. Yeah, and I and and kind of what you said about does that mean we don't ever become close to something or have something become dear versus still become still in in some sense I feel like it, it's almost now I it's almost important to me now to connect even more. Um, That's what I'm getting at. So then we would say, okay, skill then in holding things dear and skill in managing the grief when we lose it. If we develop the skill, so this is an opportunity then, as it were, for you to manage this grief over this cat at this particular time, knowing that in the future you're going to be able to handle grief-inducing situations. You did it this one, you got over it. Next time you can do it uh, with a plum and, and uh, finesse and championship. Yeah. Because you know that you can deal with grief. And some people don't. Some people will let their parents and others die and they just will not give themselves that depth of, of grief and longing and sadness and then be able to come out of it, they think, in fact, they don't want to go there because they never can get out. Mm -hmm. But for you, congratulations, you've been all the way through the room. Yeah. And out the other side, and that's an important (laughs) quality to recognize. So in that regard, I congratulate you. So now you know that um, uh, that you've got the tools to develop to, to work with grief because yeah. grief is a real hindrance when it comes <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 definitely it was uh it was it was a new hindrance for me i had never i really i had never dealt with grief ever i mean i remember missing a college roommate that was nothing that was i missed him a little uh i had never really dealt with grief ever before in my life So now you know, and you know that you can finish with it, you can handle it, that you can come out of it. And the practice of coming out of it every time we catch ourselves in it, so there may be some residual time when you remember the cat. So your job now is to make sure that the feelings that you have is, is feelings of fondness rather than feelings of the remorse over the loss. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and one thing, one thing that was bizarre to me is I, I would wake up in the morning already imagining that I was petting the cat. And at some point, my attitude on it shifted, and it just became a pleasant thing to imagine in my head. It was like, and I, I wouldn't even stop the imagination. I would just kind of keep petting the cat, but it, was, it wasn't... Um, it wasn't that I was missing the cat anymore. Uh, yeah, cool. Um. <laughs> yes, it's amazing how deep Anapanasati goes. I mean, it really does uh, help us reorder our whole lives about things. Yeah. Of remembering that the mind is generally in chaos. <laughs> 
and it's in, uh, most likely to lead us into all kinds of bad feelings. But with that anicca, we can see that and then come back out of it and come into a state. So basically what I'm talking about now is, is the integration of these two practices that you were talking about, of one with the uh, Trilokana, of Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, and recognize, oh, the Anicca is there, and we, we, it doesn't matter what practice you call it, it's, there it is, right in front, if you look at it. Mm-hmm. That things are constantly in turmoil. And by constantly in turmoil, if we cling to anything, there will be dukkha. But if there is nothing to cling to, then it will be anicca. So in a way, this anicca dukkha anatta is actually um, not a formula of A, B, C, but it's more like a Y or a fork in the road. And the road is when something changes, you've got a choice to either go the path that you've always gone or try take the new path. We always have a choice. There's a fork in the road, and a Nietzsche is going to make sure that you have lots and lots and lots of opportunities to make that choice because things are really in a flux. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, uh, I think I, I brought this up last time, but it still, it still stuck with me. Is that I, I, I heard somebody talking about the first noble truth, and their interpretation was not just that. Well, their interpretation was in every moment I have the capacity to do the self-destructive self-deceptive thing and that's really stuck with me is that that you know like when I when I fall out of my right mind into my wrong mind it's always there's just it was always just this short period of time where I wasn't you know I wasn't alert um and so it's becoming really apparent that that part of the the wrong mind will take any chance it's got to take control (laughs) Exactly <laughs> correct. Exactly correct. Think of it like gravity. Mm-hmm. Gravity is always there. If you trip, gravity is going to work <laughs> hard to make you fall. Yeah. And you can also think of it that way as the habit patterns of the mind is like gravity in, in, that, in, in that way that it, it is kind of the base or the foundation or uh, the floor or the automatic response. Let us call it that in computers we have a default for many applications and many different things and, it, and they just put it in default mode. Mm-hmm. But then people who know what they're doing can go in and tweak those defaults and get their machine to work a lot better for them. Yes, yes, and okay. I was I, I thought about that similarly as I noticed I have so many programs in my brain that are just they just they're running on autopilot and they're so bad. <laughs> they're, they're so bad. And and then th- this is what I was telling one of my friends in the Seattle Pragmatic Dharma Sangha and he said he said yes, but when you were a kid that that's what you needed 
you know, you needed to protect yourself. You needed to be very anxious because you were in an actually dangerous environment. Uh, and so uh, in the kids' world, yes. In the in real kid, reality, no. But in the kids' world, that was really dangerous. Yeah, yeah and I, I mean, it, certainly, like, I, I personally experienced some, like, physical abuse and stuff like that. And so it was... But definitely, I don't need those programs anymore. And so in a way, they're not just sort of villains. They're just, there's things, there are things that used to help me, but now they're not up to date. They're not, they need to get upgraded. That sounds exactly the way that I would express it, precisely. That we get it, that we're actually building new habits that are more appropriate than those old habits. And you were saying there's there's this side of controlling and changing versus monitoring. And I'm starting to notice I have there's there's some habits that I have now that are the correct habits and I almost jump in there trying to change it and then I realize I could just take my hands off the steering wheel. It's already doing what it needs to do. And this seems to connect to anatta somehow. Is that mm-hmm. that it's just going? This it's like my body's just a machine. It's just a robot that's just going, and I don't even really need to interfere. It's doing great. But to monitor it for danger. So yeah. that means that the pilot at the aircraft can put it on automatic pilot. So long as the pilot knows what the autopilot is doing, the name mm-hmm. things are good. And he doesn't but fall if, asleep. <laughs> right, if he doesn't fall asleep. And, but if he's, if he's awake, then he can take control back away from the autopilot, but then now he's got to fly the plane himself. And so we need to be able to fly that plane rather than just automatically relying on automatic. Our, our default position is default. To where, oh no, let's go find out how tweaking these things and and, uh, adding some stuff to it, some wisdom that we can get. For instance, autopilots may not give you the best fuel uh, uh, usage or whatever like that. Uh, Or it may be better to change the altitude because the winds are different at different altitudes. Yeah, and then there's this balance of optimizing, and then sometimes opti- too much optimizing is itself a dukkha where I'm trying to control it perfectly. Right, and exactly, when it becomes restless. Yeah. When it becomes a doing rather than uh, uh, a playful thing. That whole quality of bringing joy or playfulness back. Here's one way of looking at it, that for normal children's childhood, the young child, before he goes to school, spends most of his time in play and curiosity. He might write on the wall or draw pictures or something. And then mom comes in and she sees him writing on the wall. And now she fusses at him. He'll remember the fuss, uh, but he won't remember the 30 minutes of joy he had writing on the wall. All he remembers is the, the slap or uh, the punishment that he got. That's, by the way, a a kind of important point within the teachings of the Buddha. 
the way that things are handled in the Sangha is in the sense of rehabilitation, not punishment. But uh, the normal society has the quality of the enforcement of the law to make sure <clears throat> that people believe the law of karma. The law of karma is in every society that I know. If you do good, you'll get good results. If you do bad, you'll get bad results. And you'll get those bad results whether I get to do your bad results or not. But I'm going to make sure that you get a bad result if I don't like your action. And I call it bad. So the whole idea then is an enforcement of the rules rather than rehabilitation. And so you need to get out of doing that for yourself also. Mm -hmm. Stop oh, punishing yourself and get yourself into a mode of rehabilitation. It is all right that you screw up. Pick yourself up, dust yourself off, knowing that those hindrances are like gravity. They'll grab you any opportunity. The Buddha yeah. even has a word for it. And the word is translated into English as adventious defilements. Now, what that means in Old English is, is that the defilements will take any advantage, any opportunity to come up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And part of that has to do with the fact that they've been in, in, uh, in control for so long that that's an automatic or the default position. And you know, I've noticed that something about that in culture, that when a, a large group or organization comes unstable and starts to lose membership and starts to fall apart, they begin to get desperate. And they begin to make a lot of new mistakes. They begin to get um, excessive like that. All right, so this is exactly what's prone to happen inside of one's own mind. That once we start off in the wrong direction, it's really easy to go downhill. And an example of that would be feeling guilty over feeling guilty or being angry about being angry. Mm -hmm. Yep. I mean, humans can do really stupid things <laughs> in the way of punishing ourselves. When we don't have to, rather than that, we are going to work with rehabilitation. So in that regard, we can say that that grief of uh, lost cat was actually quite rehabilitating for you. It allowed yeah. you to go through the depth of, of grief and come out of it knowing that you're the stronger for it. So that even though you fell into a, a pit of grief, you're able to rehabilitate yourself out of it. I've uh, I've also been uh, thinking about the word right in, you know, they say right concentration, right speech, the, the Eightfold Noble Path. Um, and... And I and the the person who was uh, who gave that interpretation of the first noble truth as you know in every any moment he he also described right he said to look at it uh, uh, from from a different perspective not just like right and wrong but uh, 
thinking of it as like effective and ineffective or appropriate and inappropriate. Uh, wholesome or unwholesome. Yeah, he, he even went as far as to say the word right is more, it's more like the, the use of the word right in right-handed in the way that your right hand is really good at getting a grasp on things. And so right in the sense of, do you have a good grasp on the situation? Uh, and he was speaking kind of metaphorically there, I think. But uh, that's been very interesting uh, for me to think about just when I make decisions. Um, not, not I'm not necessarily forgetting the morality of things, but I'm also considering just what seems appropriate. Um, and this is just something I've just recently started thinking about. Just but just what what works. You know, like, I don't know, yeah. Let's add something else to that word, right. And I'll use this quality of it and call it high class or top quality. When we say right, noble view, we're talking about very, very high quality, top notch right view. Because, Mm -hmm. in fact, there is an ordinary right view. But when, when the right view becomes noble, now it's really right. It's much more of top quality. And so we have that um, understanding of, of right. Yeah. And so the next point is that um, in the sutta number 117, the one that, in fact, the, the the sutta that I use for the philosophical understanding of the, uh, the Eightfold Noble Path comes from this sutta, especially how it maps in with Anapanasati, and it's funny that they're right next door in the sutta line. Okay, 117 is uh, the Eightfold Noble Path, and 118 is uh, uh, the Anapanasati Sutta. Uh, I don't know if there's any magical connection or not, other than in my mind. But in any case, um, you use the word right, noble concentration. And I would like to work with that just a bit, so then we can go into the quality of what is, um, uh, let us say, morality as an issue. The words in Pali is the word samati. And the word samati does not necessarily mean concentration the way that the word concentration means concentration. That in fact, if we use the correct definition of samati, it will be almost the exact opposite of concentration. And I'll give you two examples of that. One is frozen concentrated orange juice. You know there is such a product, okay? Yes. Yeah, uh, 25, 30 years ago, it was um, often advertised on television. Now all you get is pills for old people on TV. But back then, um, there was um, uh, another product is Tang. And Tang, actually, yeah. they, w- they took it to the moon, okay? So that's yeah. really concentrated, right? But you don't eat Tang, nor do you drink it right out of the frozen concentrate. 
though you put the water back in to drink it, right? Yeah. But yeah, that yeah. concentrated form is uh, is for transportation and for saving somebody money someplace. And so they took out one of the most essential ingredients. A lot of people think that that's what meditation is about, too. Now, here's the, here's the point about samadhi. Samadhi means gathering the factors together. And when all of the factors are together, then things together are then in a unification or a unity. It's, there's a wholeness there because we've got all of the ingredients to it. Sort of like a jigsaw puzzle. A jigsaw puzzle can have all of the pieces all over the place. When you put it back in the box, you hear how carefully you put it back in the box. When you open the box again, it's a mess, and you have to put the puzzle back together again, right? But once mm -hmm. you get it together, now it's just one picture. So the mind is also like that, that we want to get the mind in a state of unification rather than in a state of concentration. We're not looking for a mind that's really focused hard on something. We're looking for a mind that is integrated and whole as a unit. This is what mm -hmm. we mean then by right noble uh, samati or area sama samati. So um, the way that we bring these factors together is with the first four that we had talked about already on the Eightfold Noble Path, and that is right view, right sati, right effort, and right attitude. And that basically right uh, action right <clears throat> right view comes first <laughs> and the, so it's the most noble of all as our noble view comes higher so then that will ennobilize the other factors <clears throat> so uh, the sati uh, becomes noble not because the sati is fast but because the view is noble <clears throat> But slow sati is not noble either. We need it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. So with noble sati and with noble right effort, we have now the ingredients to create a new product, which was heretofore not used, and that was right attitude. That with right effort and right, right sati and with right view, we can create a right attitude about things. That attitude, along with right view, right sati, uh, and right effort, then bring about the mind in a state of unity. So mm -hmm. those first four bring that unified mind. Now that we understand that, let's talk about some few things that will take the mind and keep it from being unified. One is, is that if we tell lies, then we're separating ourselves from the truth. It's like a break in the mind. If there's any doubt there, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. So any doubt in the mind is going to keep the mind from being unified. Right? Um, doing something and then having remorse over what we have done, that remorse is going to keep the mind from being unified. Okay? And in fact, that's inviting dukkha back in. So when a mind is then free from dukkha, that means that the mind can be unified because it's free and that the, the, um, the hindrances is what tears the mind apart 
or literally puts it in a wandering state, so it wanders from state to state to state to state, back and around, and it may cover the same territory, but it's never quite unified and whole, nor is it stable and solid. It's always kind of on the move. That's the, the form of the hindrances. We call it the wandering mind. They even go so far as to call it a monkey mind. You probably heard that expression. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, once we have the mind settled down on an object that we can keep it uh, settled on and keep it satisfied with, now that mind that is unified will automatically take care of the sila or the morality in the following way. If you uh, don't want anything, in fact, if you want something you don't have, then the mind is not unified. But if we have a state where we're satisfied with things and we don't want anything, then we're unlikely to go take it from someone. Mm -hmm. If we don't actually want it, we can like what they have, but if I don't want it, I'm unlikely to go take it. Unlikely to harm people if we don't have any ill will or uh, ill feelings away from them. So what this, the sutta actually specifies is that one's right action and right attitude, or excuse me, right uh, speech and right livelihood, those three things together come about naturally when the mind is noble, when the mind is unified. But before that time in wisdom, the ordinary person relies upon these things as rites, rules, and rituals, and uh, how to do things. In fact, it's so complex that we can actually call it society. The society of humans in which we live, which is quite possibly about 80% of all of our reality. Even people who are out in the desert alone, they still um, uh, completely rely upon civilization. The camel and the, t and the equipment and the tent and the water and all of that stuff that they brought with us, they got it from civilization. So civilization is with us whether we want it or not. And civilization is where we get all of our own rules that we hide inside of our own mile, in our own miles, to then bludgeon ourselves into performing according to the society. So that the society doesn't have to treat you like a slave. They've developed the, uh, the society mentality so that you know how to behave like a slave and do so automatically. The only difference is, is that 400 years ago they, they needed iron change. Now the paycheck will do. <laughs> yep because we're that much chained into our way of, of looking at things. So, um, in fact, I'm not saying that paychecks are bad, because many people feel good and comfortable and secure because of their paycheck. But most people don't. Most people think that they would like to feel secure with their paycheck, but they don't. It's not a big enough paycheck or whatever, and now we're right back where we started from. Okay, we're still a slave to our society, and that we were raised that way, that little children are normally quite free, 
but we put them into a chair, which is a kind of prison. We put them in front of a desk, which is kind of like a workstation, and we put our kids to work. And when are we ever going to let them free? The answer is kids are not ever going to get that free. They, each child on his own has to learn how to stand up and free himself from the chains and the bondage that he himself has created for himself. To do that, we need two things, two qualities. One is to recognize, hey, I can change. I can change. I am not a slave to this desk. I can get up and work away from this desk anytime I want to. I'm not a slave. That waking up to the fact, number one, is, is that the self that is attached to this desk is not me. And the second one is to understand that these desks are here, or these prisons are here, because of the society that each individual one who sits at that desk has created for himself in his own mind. So number one, there's a self in there to two, be um, disposed to following the set of rules. And both of these things are inside one's individual mind. This, this is the first and the second fetter of the Buddha, by the way, personality view and attachment mm -hmm. to rights, rules, and rituals. Okay, wow, the Buddha was smart. He knows how this stuff works. And so the third fetter of knowledge is in the fetter of uh, eradicating the doubt. Oh, yes. And there's three kinds of doubt. The first kind of doubt is, who can I get to help me? Where am I going to find help? Because I can't do it myself, is basically. So I need a Jesus. I need a government. I need a mommy. I need a guru. I need a meditation <laughs> teacher. I need a retreat. I need, I need, I need, I need. And you see that I needing it is actually saying that the self or the individual person is inadequate to solve his own problems. This is what the whole business world is up to. The whole business world, not just the business of Dhamma, but the business incomplete, is to try to sell you something to make you feel better because you don't know how to feel good on your own. Every religion, every book, every cat in every pet store, <laughs> they're trying to sell you something to make you feel better. Because you don't know how to do that on your own. Precisely. That's the lowest, deepest level of doubt that we have. Who can I get to fix me? And when we come to understand the second noble truth, it's like a yikes moment. Nobody's going to help. I have, this is my mess. I made it and only I can clean it up. The second noble truth says the ignorance. Yes, it's my own ignorance. It's, uh, the second noble truth says ill will. Yes, this ill will. That stuff right here. It's not over there at the church or in the hospital or someplace. That ill will, not in the boxing ring or on the war uh, battlefield. It's right here inside the mind. And then that third one is all of the greed and all the things that I want are still inside this mind. Nothing on the outside is going to fix this what's on the inside. Everything that's on the outside 
is on the outside. And the problem, even in the time of the Buddha that people had, is they were even looking for uh, meditation objects on the outside. And the Buddha says, no, we've got to turn in. This is something on the inside. That's why we do the, uh, the uh, Satipatthana, the body, the feelings, the mind, and the mind's objects. This is to turn in and recognize you're the one who made this mess. And that's the first level of doubt that we have to get through. The second level of doubt is just as big a doozy. And that is, now that I recognize that I've got to do the task, the question is, am I up to it? Am I up to this task? And the answer becomes yes when the student can say, no matter how obstructed the mind gets, no matter how much cat dukkha, or no matter how much um, um, uh, job dukkha, or girl dukkha, or any other <laughs> kind of dukkha can invade the mind, I can clean it out and come back to this state and be happy in this present moment. And when one can do that, that's the first step of the noble path. That's true knowledge that eradicates the doubt about am I up to the task. The answer is, yes, I am. This is the answer of the lion. This is the answer of the right noble attitude. Yes, I can clean out my own mess. Wow, how powerful that is. That is such a strong position, and it's based upon security. We're not afraid of the hindrances anymore. It's based upon satisfaction, that we know that we can do this, and it's based upon success. And all of these things are mentioned in the Idiopada that is talked about in the Anapanasati Sutta. We've got to get ourselves into that state of knowledge. I know I can do this. Because that, in fact, is the eradication of the doubt. Mm. And in fact, the way to look at it is there's a Pali word called shraddha. And that word shraddha is often translated into the word faith, but really how we're using it is in the sense of confidence. That I know, no matter how obstructed the mind gets, even if the cat dies in my arms, even if I get arrested for cat murder, <laughs> I can still keep my mind free and clear. And by the way, getting arrested for murder, that's not an easy hindrance to handle. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But you can, if you remember. You can be friends with the police while they're trying to interrogate you. So, no matter how obstructed the mind gets. That leaves one layer of doubt left. And this is the one that actually um, comes next in the path, and that is that when we fully understand the teaching of the Buddha, when we really understand now, because we've been working with this all along, and we come to understand Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda is the path, including the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Noble Path, Anapanasati, Satipatthana, uh, the five aggregates and Paticca Samapada, that package works. It works. Mm -hmm. I can get mm -hmm. out of my suffering with that package. The Buddha's got a plan. Yes. He's got a method here, and that method works better than any other method that I know of. The psychologist, not yet. Not yet. 
It's uh, it's interesting you said also that the word package, because I was thinking about like there was a period in time where I was meditating, and I would pull myself out of hindrance for the thirty minutes I was meditating, and then the second I got off off the cushion, I was back in hindrance. I was depressed, and the the remaining twenty three and a half hours of the day, I was depressed. Um, and I was kind of thinking about how. Um, even, even in things like, um, it, so I, I was listening to a psychologist or neuroscientist talk about how adaptive the brain is, uh, and how it's able to overcome any, you know, all these obstacles and it can work around them. But that also means the hindrances have the same tools to their disposal. They're, they, they, you know, and so if you only put one thing, if you meditate for 30 minutes and you only put one intervention, it's just going to go around it. But you need a whole system. Um, this is why I would recommend for students who say, oh, I practice an hour and a half every day. And I says, OK, that's good. Hour and a half, that's 90 minutes. That would be nine times for 10 minutes. If you practice mm -hmm. 10 minutes a day, nine times a day then you'll get more out of it than you would be in an hour and a half sitting a lot more why because after a certain period of time the mind gets tired when it gets tired it gets dull when it gets dull it goes deep then the student thinks oh i've gone deep. i'm really someplace now i've gotten really really deep no you haven't <laughs> no and besides who cares about deep anyway we want to be on top of things <laughs> yeah <laughs> We're going in the other way. <laughs> We're not going deep. And so um, looking at it from that perspective, we now have um, the, the method, the plan, the way of the Buddha. Once we know that, we can say then, by golly, I know that only I can solve this. I know that I can solve it, and I know that I've got the tools to solve it. <laughs> Now that's a remarkable place to come to. That's when we get a lot of confidence. Because we have, in fact, at that point, eradicated the, uh, the three lower fetters. And we have, at that point, it, it actually in one of the sutras, it's just said so beautifully, so poetically. And that is knowledge and vision of what is and is not the path. Because what is not the path is the path of Sila uh, Bhatta Paramasa, of following the rules, of doing it just the right way, in the, uh, but rather that the right Eightfold Noble Path is bringing the mind out of that duality of good and bad and right and wrong that this right is a higher, it's a more noble right rather than an ordinary right. Because mm. rights and wrongs both have dukkha. Mm, I see. But noble right is free, it's above it, it's transcendent. I was thinking about uh uh, personality view um, and I, I remember hearing this story by a, uh, a therapist and he 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 was saying how people are 
attached to the things that they want to get rid of about themselves. And the, the story he gave was he had a patient who came in and he was like, I'm just so stubborn. If I wasn't so stubborn, you know, things would be better at my job. Things would be better with my wife. But God damn it, I'm just so stubborn. And then a little bit later in the conversation, the therapist asked him, what's the best quality about yourself? And he said, man, I'm persistent. I don't stop. I get things done. And it was like the same thing. I thought that was so interesting. And and I, 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 I've been hearing like how people I've been hearing people around me say things like, oh, you know, that's you know, I'm just lazy. That's just how I am. <laughs> and it's, it's so it's it's weird to hear. <laughs> yes, I understand uh, uh, what you're saying, right. That that we have a view of our personality, that if we start having a more noble view, we recognize, wait a minute, I'm not that personality at all. That in fact, in transition, we're not even sure who we are yet. Yeah. And, uh, and there was... It's and it's. I was listening to this thing called. They called it the agent arena relationship, uh, and how the identity of an individual, how it it's completely tied to how you identify the environment you're in. And so there, there's been this theory of addiction, which is like, oh, if you do uh, a lot of heroin. Uh, it pumps your brain full of these happy chemicals, and then your brain really wants those happy chemicals. Uh, and this psychologist was saying that that's actually not a good theory. And one of the re- one of the examples was if you look at soldiers who went to Vietnam, they were doing all sorts of drugs when they were there, and then when they came back to the U.S., they didn't have any problem, they didn't have any cravings, and and his explanation was when they were there, they identified as a soldier in a war. And when they came back, they were a civilian in a country, in a peaceful country. And so even the addiction was tied to this identity and this environment. Yes, and isn't that marvelous that in fact we can change our identity. We can change how we look at ourselves, how we view things, etc. like that. And this is the most important quality of the understanding of personality view, is that it's not fixed. Mm-hmm. You are not who you thought you were. That at best, you're work in progress. <laughs> yeah. And if we're working correctly, the progress will be less and less selfish and more and more altruistic. This is one's right noble view, is, is that we get a, a bigger, overall, uh, grander view of things. Yeah. Even, uh, even with my cat, when I was crying, I had this moment where it, it, something shifted and it was almost like the cat became the center of my world. And I had never not been the center of my own world before. And it was amazing. 
Um, and it lasted just just a second, but it was it was deep. Um, all right, I'm getting sleepy. Okay, well, I've got another call waiting, so we'll finish this off. I'm really glad to see you again. Yes. Let me see you again soon, I hope. Absolutely. Thank okay, you. I'm Goodbye. On. Happy.